I know I'm crazy with Naja Hall audience. How are you all on this beautiful Tuesday or whatever day you're listening to this? So if you are listening, I just want to let you know that you have an opportunity to actually watch this version of the podcast. You can go to YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and basically everywhere else that you guys know that I reside on the internet and watch my guest, uh, today's guest and myself. So please take a pause if you want to see these beautiful faces then I want you to go over and click the link below and come and watch us. Today, we're talking to Dr. Kelly Baker. And right after this dance break, I'm going to tell you all about her. I know I'm crazy. I know I'm crazy. I know I'm, know I'm crazy. I know I'm crazy. Kelly Baker has counseled individuals and families since 1994. She was educated at Texas State University, TSU, hey, where she earned a BA in psychology and a master's in counseling and guidance. She completed her master's degree in program evaluation and a PhD in developmental, social, and personality psychology. She specializes in providing mental health services to families during divorce. Oh, you all know we need that post-divorce lord knows we need that and today dr baker is here to teach us a little and tell us all about her experiences but first and foremost let's say hello to dr baker hello dr kelly baker how are you today hello Nadja hall i'm great thank you for having me <laughs> absolutely so i, I dr baker i've had the privilege of speaking to her before and when i was reading her bio and about her extensive work, especially with families, individuals and couples post-divorce, dealing with um, mental health evaluations, her work with the court, alienation. I felt like I was looking into my future if I could etch it out myself, which we all know that we have the power to do. Dr. Baker, I have some, and I told everybody I was speaking to you, so I have some questions if we, maybe we'll have time to get to those from our audience. Okay. But first and foremost, I would love to know the process that leads a person to doing the work that you do. How do you, and besides your bio, obviously, how did you decide to focus on this particular part of the mental health family court ministry? Some people call it a ministry. Right. Well, you know, I think that a certain part of it just happened naturally. I remember this uh, talk I heard that Colin Powell gives to high schoolers and he Mm -hmm. says, if you can, I know if mm. you can do what you love and, and what you love is what you're good at, then there's no way you won't be successful. Mm. And I think that those two things just matched up for me. I love working with families. I, um, I was raised by a single mom. And so that is part of my history and understanding the importance of having uh, really good relationships as best as you can with both your parents, given what they have to offer you. And being pretty realistic about that has a lot to do with how we function in the world as adults. And so um, also there's just not very many um, mental health professionals who will uh, get in this work and work with the courts. And for the most part, the judges really want to know how to help these families and they know that their expertise is not child development or psychology or divorce or anything else. And so they really look to mental health professionals to 
to um, advise them and guide them in their decision making. And so I felt like I was really providing a service that that people really needed and appreciated for quite a while. I got to a point where I think I began to get the backlash from, um, of course, from, you know, uh, people who weren't getting what they wanted from my recommendations. And so uh, and that began to really uh, wear on me. But initially, I'll say I, I got asked to do things more and more by lawyers in my area and by the court. And it just happened that I think I had some natural skill in working with these families. So typically, um, for those of you that aren't really familiar with the terminology, when you are going through maybe a contentious divorce with children, what you'll see is a lot of people hire someone called a GAL. And this person is a representative of the child. They're not on mommy's side. They're not on mommy's side. They're not on daddy's side. They're typically a family focused person that represents the best interests of the kid. And that person would be in this case, Dr. Baker. She would come in and, and correct me if I'm wrong. You would evaluate everybody who's involved in the scenario. Who is it that would typically hire you, Dr. Baker? Is it either one of the parents? Would it be the courts? How do people get started if they need someone like you to help them? Uh, it would be the parents' attorneys asking the court to appoint an ad litem, a private ad litem. There are some counties that have um, that have domestic relations office that employ guardians, and so they would um, they would not cost anything. But a lot of people will ask for a private guardian and then the attorneys usually have a few names to choose from and the judge chooses if they haven't already agreed on who it okay. would be so when you come in let's say um, you're going to be the guardian at litem for a family or gal however you guys prefer to say it um dr baker you're introduced to the scenario both parents are probably claiming that the other one is crazy both are claiming that they are the better parent both are claiming that my child wants to live with me and go see that other parent every other weekend. How do you tell who is best suited? Are there some usually some telltale signs where you can smell alienation or you can see that there's a disordered personality somewhere here in the mix that's going to make this thing very litigious? What does Dr. Baker do? Like, what's the process? Well, the process is as a neutral person to get to know all members of the family in, in a way that's very balanced and equitable, right? So you're having so many sessions with mom, so many sessions with dad, um, and so many sessions with each of the children. So I would say when red flags appear uh, very early in a case, it's when a child is absolutely refusing any contact with another parent. So contact refusal can happen at many different levels and some of it can be really mild and, and kind of an adjustment response to divorce or separation. Mm -hmm. And then other levels are really serious. And so when you get an adolescent or an eight-year-old, nine-year-old in your office saying, I want absolutely nothing to do with my other parent. I hate my other parent. If I have to be with my other parent, I'm going to commit suicide or I'm going to run away. Well, those are really big, big red flags that there's something amiss. Mm. 
What do you do when, if there's a family out there, because I know you said there are some court appointed ad litems. So if a family was to hire you or one of the parties, let's just say mom hired you, does that mean that dad automatically needs to hire an ad litem of his own to represent him? Because I could see where a parent would be like, wait a minute, that person represents the other party because their attorney hired them. How do you let them know that this is fair and unbiased? Well, usually the process itself will reveal that when they feel heard, but I'm never hired by just one side. You know, I'm it's it's the other both attorneys have to agree that I'm the one that they want to choose or I don't get chosen. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So then you're sitting in the session with the child and you're kind of seeing the telltale signs of all right, maybe this child's perspective has been manipulated. Maybe they've been urged by another parent, uh, by one of their parents to disparage the other. What is usually the recommendation? I mean, I know you don't say, oh, this kid doesn't need contact with the alienating parent, but what is the recommendation? Like what happens? Well, when you're a guardian, the great thing about being a guardian as opposed to just doing a custody evaluation is that as a guardian, you can make a few recommendations as you move along in the process, as long as you've done enough work to um, to be able to articulate what the problems are and why they might need to be addressed with some family therapy or some parent coaching or something like that. And when, you, when you're able to make those recommendations, then you're able to see how do people respond to um, a suggestion of some sort of intervention that might help. <laughs> yeah. uh, and that's usually very informative to the assessment process. Mm. So you're, you're giving these recommendations and these people are sitting there reading them. And I could imagine if you're telling an alienating parent or someone that thinks, especially that they are the authority that, hey, you need to go take parenting classes. I don't imagine you would get the best uh, response from this person. So I a lot of my interest and a lot of the work that I do is just based around studying adverse personalities. And the people that love this podcast, they too have a keen interest on not really dealing with the adverse personalities, but how to keep the adverse personality from affecting their day-to-day, -day, which can be difficult if you're co-parenting, step-parenting, um, living aligned with such a person. So what advice do you have in just dealing with these types of personalities? Not, not maybe just not even, just maybe personal advice, you know, not from your GAL perspective, but how the heck do we deal with it, Dr. Baker? What are we supposed to do? <laughs> what do we do? Um, I say, look first, look for the question marks in the, um, in the written communication. So you, you know how there's a high conflict personality will try to get you with so, so many different kinds of emotional statements or criticisms or insults and that sort of thing. And a lot of time, if you read through the co-parenting communication, there's not a question in there to respond to. And I mean, you're right. <laughs> so. That's just one way to just uh, to to not take the bait on a lot of issues that are really not going to be resolved by you responding anyway. Mm. So, so being smart about what you respond to and picking your battles wisely. 
And I know you personally have done a lot of work and a whole bunch of additional hours aside from your training on specifically looking in on alienation. And you've studied under uh, under other experts in the field. This might I don't I don't want anybody to, guys don't get mad at me for asking this question, okay, guys? But is there when we speak of the mother or the father, is there a parent that's more prone to exacting alienation, or is it 50-50 mom, 50-50 dad? It depends on who you ask. It's it's okay. very, <laughs> it's very close to um to equal equal numbers that a, a mother or a father is just as likely to be alienating the children as the other. Would mom and dad go about alienating in the same ways? Because, you know, when we look at abuse from men versus women, there seems to be some classically different patterns. Men tend to be maybe more physically volatile. Women may be more emotionally manipulative, but we know they can kind of jump back and forth between the two. So is there a pattern that we would see in mom versus dad? I think there is kind of a pattern that um, that mirrors that abuse, uh, the difference in the way that uh, a man or a woman might be abusive in a relationship where a woman is more likely to um, more likely to be just more subtle about it than than a man. Uh, and it doesn't seem on the surface of things that it's as aggressive as a man's tactics and yet it is in in many ways yeah that's subtle stuff you know that's the stuff that gets under your skin it takes root it resides there for a while and it grows so it's it's i guess it's all still equally just as abusive and so when we think of alienation because a lot of people who listening to this consider themselves to be alienated parents alienated step parents or family members we know all the studies, we know the numbers are out there on how to recognize it, Dr. Baker, but then what the heck do you do about it? When this is a part of your everyday life, when your child is saying, I hate you, I don't want to be here, or I don't want to talk to you, or you've heard the parent verbalize, I don't want my kid to have a relationship with your new husband or your new wife. What is the person that's the victim, uh, the target? What the heck? I almost cussed and you guys know I'm trying to stop cussing. What are you supposed to do, Dr. Baker? How do you combat this? So, you know, on one of your podcasts, you talk about your book some, and I really like some of the things that you recommended. I think that it's a variety of things. It's not just one thing that you do to survive that kind of attack and assault on your relationship with your child, right? And it really depends on um, on the level of what's going on. There are, there are, when you're working with the child, so one of the things I do when I'm working with a parent who feels like they're being um, alienated, targeted. yeah, or targeted, may, maybe the child's still transitioning back and forth between the homes, but they're beginning to hear some comments that let them know, and, and they begin to experience some rejection when the kids are there. I often say, you know, take some time to sit down and think about how are you being characterized by the other parent to the children? You know, you, you know how you're being characterized because you were married to the person, right? And so make sure that your behavior is not feeding into that when you're with the kids. So you have to be, you know, I have some targeted parents say, well, you know, you're taking away my ability to parent by telling me I can't just tell them to 
you know, uh, go to the room and give me their phone. And I'm like, well, you're not in a normal parenting situation. And that's the first thing you've got to realize is that is that as as angry as it might make you that you just can't be a normal parent. If you really want to deal with this in the best way and, the, and, and be as successful as you can on your own, you have to realize you're in a different context. You don't have the luxury to discipline and without being undermined. Yeah. You and you've got to be really careful to not step into a situation. And let's say that you're characterized by being um, explosive, yelling and abusive and you're kid comes home and is acting a certain way and you've had a horrible day at work and you just want to snap, right? That I have seen just something like that work as a, the child will go back to the other parent, the alienating parent, and that's it. They won't come back. They go home. They say, this is what happened. They yelled at me. They grabbed my phone. I tried not to give it to them. So they yanked it out of my hand. And before you know it, you've got CPS, abuse charges, and the kid's not coming over anymore. You know, So you've got to be really cognizant. You've got to be smart about how you're being characterized and don't step into that. The other piece that I think is really helpful is to think about move from being angry about what's happening to having compassion about for the child and the predicament that they're in, because the child knows in, in severe cases, the child knows that if they don't make a choice, they're going to lose the parent they're aligned with. They usually know that the parent they're rejecting is the parent that would one day forgive them. The parent they're aligned with, they're terrified that if they if they don't align with them, they that parent will be non-existent in their lives. That's the fear that the child that is blackmail. That is literally emotional blackmail. Yeah. Okay. So it's a horrible situation for a child to be in. So then what does that mean for the parent that they are not aligned with, for the targeted parent? Um, are you supposed to just live your life in a co-parent and parent under a microscope? knowing that any little thing you do would knock you out of this child's, and I'm using air quotes, guys, good graces, and push them further toward that alienating parent. Um, does this mean that you are walking on eggshells with your own child? Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> Just flat out, yes. I thought you were going to say no, Naja. That's not you. <sighs> okay. Yes. So, you know, that's a hard pill to swallow because I think it was Dr. Shivali or somebody that, that, that said parenting is one of those egotistical roles that we can have, you know, and that is a big blow to a lot of parents' egos because it's like you're telling me that I don't get to exist in the comfort of my own home and raise my child the way I want to. And what you're saying is, no, you don't, because nothing about your situation is normal. You don't have that luxury. Right. And what you do about it, there are different options, right? When does it get get so bad that you try to change uh, the amount of time, perhaps, that they're with that parent? Um, that's not a uh, that's not a complete fix all the time to just have more time. Um, but that's a long battle, you know. That's, that's expensive. It, yes. And That's if they're an alienator, more than likely, let's just say in the snowball's chance in hell that you did get uh, custody 
custodial you're, you're the custodial parent now and they're seeing that other parent supervisor every other weekend i would assume that the alienator is going to use every opportunity to further their mission of causing distension in their child's life and and with that targeted parent well yes and we know that you don't have to be the parent with the majority of the time to um to alienate the kids yeah, you can do it on a very, you know, I've seen it happen over a summer with somebody who lives in a different state, right? The kids only see them, uh, you know, three different visits a year. But during the summer, it happens at one point where the kids don't come back from the summer visit. And so it's not always the parent with the most time. I mean, the most protective you could have it would be if the parent is supervised when they're with the child. It's hard for them to to use those uh, manipulations that they use when nobody's around, when somebody's watching them, right? It's, it's harder. But there are very few courts that will have long-term supervision in place. So you might get that for a little bit. And then you're going to have the courts are going to want to start moving that parent back into some sort of uh, normal parenting schedule if they can. And so this means that they're reintroduced into the child's life and they can just pick up where they left off if, if all else fails. Uh, yes, they could. Some do and um, some don't. Many, um, many alienating parents who lose custody actually just walk away. Um, from the children and they, they will see them maybe at whenever they age out, whenever they get to be 18, they might make contact again. Um, but I've seen that happen a lot where they, they lose custody and then they're, they just, you know, kind of disappear out of the child's oh, life. I could, see, I could actually see that. I don't even think that's a money issue. It's like, all right, I didn't win this fight, but I'll, I'll come back and fight another day and, get them after they're 18. So then if you're the targeted parent and you're in a situation where you don't have um, supervised custody, that means this other parent has full access, full reign in this child's life. You know that alienation is happening. You know that you do kind of need to walk in, walk on eggshells when you're parenting your child. Um, are there other things that you can do? Can you actually talk to your child and say, hey, you're experiencing something called parental alienation. You're in a loyalty bind. Um, emotional incest, which is probably not something we would mention to children, but what is happening to you is not normal. Do you try to, is it proper to try to educate your children and give them a name to what's happening or is it just completely pointless? It depends on how, um, how far along that continuum they are. So if you get an adolescent, let's say, who's pretty, um, acting up and pretty rejecting when they come over, not wanting to do anything with you and are pre pretty vocal about it. If you try to say you're being alienated or put a word on it, they will just, they'll resist it completely, right? It, they'll just dig their heels in further. You have to find other ways to be a little more subtle about it, you know, um, in saying, you can say things like, um, I realize you're in a, you're in a bind, you know, you can have um, just some more normal language to describe what you see them, the, the, the no win situation they're in, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I think empathy or compassion 
goes a lot further than trying to tell them that their other parent that they're already aligned with is doing something wrong. Because part of being an alienated child is that you have this reflexive response to protect that parent. And so you can't come at it that way. Mm. Does you in turn kind of seem like the alienator? Because now you're putting the kid on defense. Like, oh, you're talking about my mom. You're talking about my dad. And is when is it okay to walk away? If you say, you know what? My kid is a lost cause. Their mind is so gone. They are disrespectful to the people in my home. They don't accept my new spouse. They treat their new siblings harshly. And when they come here, the home balance is just completely off. They don't enjoy being here. I don't enjoy them being here. At what point do you say, you know what, kid? You said you don't want to come here anymore. I'm going to uphold that. It's, what, that is, is it? such a personal choice. You know, when I work with um, parents who have been, you know, really rejected like that, it's it's one of the options that they have. And when it gets to the point that it's completely disrupting the whole household, you know, for, uh, I mean, a blended family is a perfect example where somebody has has remarried and maybe they've had a child of their own and you've got a young child who's having this, the, the, the role modeling even, right. That's going on by the older sibling is just not healthy. And so there are so many different factors for making that decision, but I really, I really think it's a personal one. And then I think it needs to be done very carefully and conscientiously where there's a letter that's written, there's a conversation that's had in front of a therapist, maybe, because there are certain ways to do that, where you let the child go with with love, and not with anger, that would be important. And you let the child go with messaging that tells them they are free to walk back through that door anytime with no questions asked. I mean, all of the work that you might have to do as a family, if a child did come back, could be done eventually. But the letting the child go, they need to know, you know, if at any point you can come you, back. you can we come want back. you here. Yeah. Um, I imagine it would be difficult because let's say they, they're getting to 14, uh, 15, 16, 17, and the alienation has been happening double digit years at this point. I could imagine the disruption that happens in the household. And as you said, you might have younger children that are looking to them and this the harmful impact on that. And so letting go, which is something that is just difficult, I'm sure for any parent to imagine, you know, it's kind of like you're almost for, forced to choose the entire family that you're in now over this one particular child. And I imagine that a kid would grow into a very angry adult when they think back on, well, I know I was being hell in mom or dad's house, but they could have just let me go through it, you know? And then how, you know, how does that coming back happen? And then now they're at the mercy of that alienating parent. See, I told you, told you daddy got married and has a new family and he didn't want you. I told you. And so I could imagine what that does. Do you ever see the alienated child reject the alienator? Is that something that's common or as they become adults, do they veer closer and start to take on that parent's mannerisms and attitude? You know, I've seen it. I've seen both. 
I've seen a child who's resisting and rejecting one parent move through their mid-adolescent years, like 12 to, I don't know, 15. Ooh, those know. hard years. <laughs> yeah. And then start to get to the age where they can, um, they can engage in hypothetical thinking and critical thinking skills. Their brain just changes, right? At, at a certain age, the brain starts to change and you can have more complex thought patterns yes. so that you can explain things a little better. I've seen a child get to that point and, and realize, kind of connect the dots and, and get really angry at the once favored parent. Um, and I've also wow. seen children not ever be able to connect the dots and move into adulthood with really, um, really deficient interpersonal skills. And so the splitting that they engaged in as a child with their parents, one all good, one all bad, they carry into adulthood. And, and other relationships, right? Right. Relationships with professors, relationships with employers, relationships with friends, and then girlfriends or boyfriends. And, um, and then they manage those relationships in the same way. Somebody's all good or they're all bad. So you just, and then you see this years of failed relationships and inability to really function well in the adult world. Does your partner share kids with a loony? Are your stepkids driving you up a wall? Is your partner failing miserably at setting boundaries? Well, VIP Stepmom is where you need to be. We're an exclusive private community just for stepmoms, and we'd love for you to join our tribe. Each month, our members enjoy private conversations, podcasts, expert workshops, a subscription to Stepmom Magazine, and monthly live Zoom meetings. If you're ready to join a diverse community that is committed to making sure you live your best life, visit VIP Stepmom today. We'll save a seat for you. VIP, VIP, Stepmoms, that's you and me. So this is basically, this is a strong possibility of the onset of a pattern of broken and harmful relationships that the alienating parent could be injecting their child in. But I don't think they would care because they themselves have that. They Their perspective is probably so skewed that they don't see it like, oh, I'm screwing my child up to where they won't be able to have and establish relationships based on trust and love. Right. And they usually don't because they usually have that in their background also. So these are generational patterns of oh, how to manage your important relationships. They get passed down and usually, um, you know, because the person has not done their own therapy work over how their, their own family of origin handled relationships and the break of, of relationships, um, yeah, and so they just repeat the pattern because they really have not spent the time looking at their own parent-child relationships mm -hmm. and uh, and doing just doing the work to grieve whatever pain they went through. They just repeat a pattern. Is there a way for, let's just say you're in a co-parenting relationship, is there a way for a co-parent, maybe the targeted parent, to appeal to this person that is alienating their child or attempting the alienation to say, hey, maybe you can look into your own pattern of broken relationships because that's what you're trying to do with our kid and get some help. I mean, I don't know a nice way to say that. Um, 
So how would one, if that's something that's even possible and get a good reception from it, how would one go about doing that? I don't know how one could get a good reception from that. I mean, I I don't know either. I was hoping (laughs) you knew something, Dr. Baker. You know, some no. magic words to tell us. <laughs> no, my thought, my thought is you just have to uh, take a chance and say it and hope that maybe something about it resonated with you. Yeah, the other yeah, no, people. that's going to be a fight. It'll definitely be a fight. It'll be a, yeah, yeah, yeah. So then what about, we've been talking a lot about parents as a target, but we often know that when a parent decides to alienate their child from their other parent, that usually includes that new partner, the new siblings, that parents, uh, the grandparents, the aunties, uncles, cousins, that means basically they're trying to wipe out the entire side of that child's other family, paternal or maternal side. Is it possible for these individuals, let's say step parents, to still establish a relationship with these children when their parent has basically said, I don't want you to like mommy's new husband. I don't want you to like um, daddy's new wife. Is there something that this other person can do to maybe establish later in life? I think so. I think that there are many moments in the course of family interactions where a step parent can, can be more of the support, um, can come in from the back, maybe. Uh, I mean, I say the back, but I mean, just, you know, you're, you're kind of, you're holding yourself back some. You're not the you're not the primary parent, but whenever something's going on, you can come in and provide some support somehow. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that um, that being able to do that means you're going to do that for a lot of years without ever getting any appreciation for it. And and you have to be um, you know you have to be centered in yourself and know that you're doing it because. Um, you're planting seeds for the future. You're not doing it because you need to be appreciated or you need to be the hero or you need to be the favorite or anything else. You're just doing it because you know the kids in a bind. They don't know how else to act. To to be friendly or to be appreciative would be betraying their other parent. And, you know, you've just got to always remind yourself of that. And yet there are days that I think a step parent is good at that. And there are other days where they don't have it to give. And those are the days where you just don't interact, right? You're like, I'm not in a place today. Um, your attitude, you can say it to yourself, right? Your attitude is way too much for me today. I've had a hard day. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go do something for myself. And you just remove yourself for a bit. That's one of the cool things about being a step parent for me personally is, yeah, you do have to step up a lot, but you can surely step aside and you can Mm -hmm. step back and you can step out. So I I totally agree with that. It sounds like, you know, building emotional intelligence for for an alienated child, that's probably not something that their parent is focusing on. And so when they're in the targeted household, just teaching them words, um, teaching them what emotions mean and putting names to their feelings. Hey, I feel frustrated. Hey, I feel sad. Hey, I feel, you know, just, just different things. It sounds as if though, that there's hope if this child has a level of emotional intelligence and when they gain independence, meaning moving away or moving out of that alienating parents household, they really are probably going to have to come up with some answers on their own. And that's going to be through seeking therapy like doing the work on their own. And that kind of sucks, Dr. Baker, because 
What if these kids aren't led to therapy? What if they don't have somebody to turn on the light bulb and be like, you know, your mom or your dad, what happened to you wasn't fair, right? Does that mean it's just a lost cause? Well, you, if they've still got contact with, with the targeted parent when they go to college, I think that's a great time to say, why don't we do some family therapy or why don't we go to therapy together? You know, um, if they haven't been allowed to do that, if the favored parent did not support therapy um, and you couldn't get in to really work on your relationship with them, I think college is, is an amazing opportunity for these kids because they can have contact and they can do things that are healing to that relationship without the other parent ever knowing about it. I mean, they can tell them if they want to, but because they're away at college, they don't have the, they don't have the burden that they had when they knew they had to go home to that parent in two days. You know, do you ever notice that if they have a longer chunk of time that they relax? Yeah. It's when they have to make a lot of transitions and they just have two days before they have to go back into the other household that they never can let their guard down. Hmm. So longer chunks of time are better. So when they're away for the parent, either longer chunks of time or they're in an independent state, meaning, hey, they're a 17 year old or 18 year old freshman that you're saying is that's probably going to be the key time for that targeted parent to etch up and, and kick up a new relationship with them or to redefine what the relationship is going to be. Yes. And to be there for them in ways that maybe they couldn't before. And even in special ways, if you if you're talking to your college student and you know that there's something, you know, they're not doing well in math, they need a tutor or something like that. You know, if you can be the one to say, hey, it sounds like maybe you just need a tutor. Do you want to do you want me to you want me to help you with that? Or can we find somebody? I mean, that you could do those things for them would they could accept that more when they're away at college Mm, they can accept the help without guilt right when do you typically see the loyalty bond being loosened um i've seen in my own practice where you have 40 50 year old adults that are still almost um seeming like they're still breastfeeding for mama and they just cannot that umbilical cord like that invisible chain of control it's still there. It's still resonating in their soul and in their spirits. But for people that are not like that, when do you see that people are starting to puff up and say, you know what, I am independent now and I'm, I'm going to become my own individual. Is there a certain thing that needs to happen in this person's life or around a particular age? Cause we want to know where is the freaking finish line to all of this? Yeah. Um, you know, when they're less dependent, on the parent when they're less dependent on them. Right. And so that could be at 16 or 17 when they start to drive and they have a part-time job and they're feel they're away from the parent more and they're just gaining in their own sense of independence and, and, and identification of, as an adult, they want to differentiate from that parent. Those are, those are times where, um, where you'll see those bonds, uh, or that alignment weekend. Mm, mm. That's amazing. Okay, I have some questions. I am going to let me just open up my device. One second, guys. You know what? Normally I have this stuff open. Okay, boom. Here we go. 
Hi, Dr. Baker. Thank you so much for offering to do this. I have been a stepmom for eight years and my 16 year old stepdaughter is constantly told by her mother that she cannot like me. Yes, I've heard her actually say these words, but when I'm around my stepdaughter, things are really normal. We do hair, we paint nails together. She tells me about her boys, boyfriends. Oh, okay. I'm going to skip this part. She tells me about her personal life. What can I do to ensure that this stuff doesn't get in this kid's head? Is there anything I can say? I really want to call out her mom's behavior. Well, they, um, the experiences that she describes in that question about doing hair and um, are really so much more valuable than words. The behaviors, the time together, um, because the words put her in a bind but the behaviors allow her to just experience the stepmother as um, kind, as supportive um, and there for her. And, um, you know, I say the most that you would ever want to say would, would be something like, I know the first few days are hard for you, or I know it's hard going back and forth. I know there's a lot of pressure when you, go back and forth. I can't imagine what that's like, but I know it must be really hard on you. Those are, that would be about it. And then you leave it. You just let okay. that sit. You say a little something and you leave it. It's not so a the proof is in the pudding. Like you said, the actions are so much louder than yeah. the words. Got yeah. it. Okay. The next question is when I first married my husband, he made me and everyone else think that his ex-wife was the problem. He would say things like, She's narcissistic. She's crazy. He even had proof and he showed me old emails and even a bite wound that he claims that she did. Over the course of our marriage, though, I'm starting to see where it's actually him that might have been the problem. Can I address this with him and what should I do? I think you can address it with him. I think you can call out the similarities without... And don't pick a time when you're already having an argument, right? Yeah. Pick a time. She said, you, you have a problem. <laughs> right. <laughs> pick another time and say, you know, I noticed that you're, you're starting to call me this or you're starting to say that I do these things. And, and those were things that you said about, you know, your, your ex-wife. What do you, what do you think about that? You know, just, <laughs> it has to be, um, it's just got to be delivered. Delivery is so important and timing, right? At a time when they can most hear it, they may not, it may, you know, get up and be all blustery and ah, yeah. I can't believe you said that. It's super me. defensive. Yeah. And, and you just have to say, okay, you know, and just kind of let, let it go and see again, if you can say a few things that they think about maybe at a time when, when you're not around, maybe they don't, you know, maybe they need to save face or whatever. Yeah. Eventually you would want your spouse to be able to own up to it though. Awareness means a lot. Cause it just sounds like that person is probably lacking a whole lot of self-awareness and I bet there's some deeper stuff too happening. Yeah. Okay. Last question. I have like, Oh my gosh, you guys for, uh, Maybe I'll email Dr. Baker these questions and she'll answer them, but she's very busy, so I don't know. So, but this is the last one. I think this is a very important one. So I chose this one. Okay. Hi, Dr. Baker. I've reviewed your website because I did give them your website, Dr. Baker, when I said I'm asking, I'm talking to this lady. <laughs> 
So my ex-husband and I divorced eight years ago. Our son is 11 years old now, but upon divorce, our child, upon divorce, my ex-husband moved away and he rarely keeps in contact. Now my son is developing some challenges. He is fighting at school. He is talking back to me and I really need his father's help. My son has also expressed many times over that he knows his dad doesn't want him. And I firmly believe this is what's leading to his disciplinary issues. Should I call dad for help? Should I go to therapy? Do you have any advice on what I can do about my son's behavior? P.S. I think I might be on my own here. Um, I think if you're on your own, um, then probably therapy uh, is the best way to address the um, son's sense of abandonment. You know, I mean, kids internalize things, especially when it happens when they're young. Everything in a kid's life is caused by them. That's just their egocentric, you know, perception of the world. If dad leaves, it's got to be because I did something wrong. That's mm. the way that's the way that a young child makes sense of their parents' behavior. They don't ever think, oh, there's something wrong with you. But as an older child, if he has help processing that, and then he may be able to see that differently. But he does have to, he is going to have to address the fact that he probably internalized it at a very young age, his dad's absence as being about him, that he wasn't good enough. And so there, there you see his actions. He's acting Aligning with it. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah. So helping him to make that connection is the most, uh, you know, would be the biggest gift that she could give him, but calling dad, if she thinks he has the ability to, to be present, what would be not so great is if he showed up and then disappeared again. Right. Oh, um, God, that'd be detrimental. And so seeing where he's at in his life, is he able to provide some consistency? Maybe could, does he even have enough to be able just to free the kid up and say, look, I, I disappeared because I had stuff going on in my life and I didn't think I could be a good dad. Does he have enough to even be able to give the kid that, you know? Mm. Um, so just see assessing on her own without involving the boy what is dad's potential to help? Is it any at all? That's always the crapshoot. That's so scary. Because like you said, what if dad starts out strong and then disappears and falls back into that pattern of not being active? I imagine that would probably create a bigger problem than the one she's dealing with right now. The only way that that might be turn out good is that the, the, the son would see, her son would see, <sighs> oh, this is, this is just who he is. This is not me. me. This isn't about me. This is who he is. Um, that would be the only way that something like that, but you, I think he would need to be in therapy to help process it that way. Right. Mm. To understand the dad's behavior and those terms as an, as just an example of who he is. Mm. Okay. Okay, I see. Thank you so much for answering those audience questions, Dr. Baker. So before we wrap up, I have questions for you just about everyday life in your practice. What is your favorite part of your job? And then what's the least favorite part of your job? My favorite part is being able to make recommendations that benefit a child, that, cha that change their life significantly in some way. Um, 
to uh, reconnect parents with children who have they haven't seen in years because of uh, a severe case of alienation yeah. and to see the child sort of come back to life. It's, it's, I just can't even explain it. It's beyond wow. anything in the world because as they take on the, in a severe case, a child just becomes a, a speaker for their parent. They lose their sense of true self. Their connection to their true self gets completely shut down. So when you reunite them and you free them of that, you see this kid come to life. It's just like absolutely amazing. That's, that's, I I, I can't tell you. Um, And then probably the thing that I hate the most is whenever I become the target of the personality disordered, you're the bad guy rage. And I have to, you know, I have to find ways to distance myself from the attack on social media. I've been followed to the courthouse before I've been, you know, so that's, that's the uh, part I don't like the most. I could imagine that's because you're helping the court make some decisions on something that's, extremely important to human beings is their children. Even disordered people have strong connections, maybe skewed to their kids. And you're the person that they feel is in control. And then that means you get the blame sometimes when it doesn't go their way. And I could not imagine what it means to have a person that you know for a fact, because you are able to diagnose. I couldn't imagine what that means to have this person that you know has some sort of disorder or mental illness now you're their target. Yeah, oh my God. It's really that's, scary. That's and you scary. Can't, you can't protect yourself because you're under, you can't talk about it. So they can say anything they want, right? And you can't say. They can say, I'm going to kill you. you. If you do this, I'm going to burn your uh, business down. Like they could say anything. Yeah. My favorite one was uh, pedophile, pedophile by proxy. That's what I was called. oh my god but it is in a way it's like that i mean that's social media right you can say whatever you want there's nobody out there that's gonna shut you down um i can't say anything in response so that's hard so then you yourself you like you gotta go find a therapist that can help you to deal with all these people that ain't going to therapy that's just hard so do therapists have therapists yes Yes, they do. And they have very close friends who are really great therapists. And so if you need somebody to call you on your stuff, you usually have a colleague who's going to step up and say, hey, I think you've got your own stuff going on there. You know, yeah, (laughs) that is so awesome, except for the part about the um, the harassment that has to be emotionally taxing and maybe you should probably write a book for professionals just dealing with that stuff because yikes yikes because i know a lot of attorneys that have been threatened especially um family court attorneys judges a lot of them have been threatened so i don't know if there's services out there for people in the field that are essentially impacting a parent's ability to be with their children. So I'm sure that parent, if they're an angry parent, that ain't going to stop in the courtroom. 
Yikes. Um, no, no, it's not. And that is why we can't get enough mental health professionals to help families going through separation yeah. and divorce. We can't. We can't keep them. I mean, there's a handful of people in every community um, that stick it out and do it. And and that's really that's why. Yeah. More than because I, I guess it's much more cushy to deal with contract law. You're not dealing with human beings and their emotions or <laughs> dealing with entertainment law or um, helping clients not with this stuff. So this is definitely a labor of love. And I can see why you've been so successful, Dr. Baker. It's because you're one of the ones out there that truly cares. And I thank you so much for being here with us today. Make sure you all go and visit Dr. Baker at kellybakerphd.co. That's kellybakerphd.co. Thank you so much, Dr. Baker, for joining us at I Know I'm Crazy with Naja Hall Podcast. You made it through, and now you are inducted into the crazy society yes. like the rest of us. I Thank hope you, you graciously accept this award. It frees you to be as crazy as you want to be. <laughs> I need that permission. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you all next Tuesday and every other Tuesday on your favorite streaming platforms. This has been another episode of I Know I'm Crazy with Naja Hall. I know I'm crazy. I know I'm crazy. I know I'm doing crazy. I know I'm crazy. Not your heart.